Okay, like we all know representation matters, and it's going to sound weird what I'm about to say, but hear me out. There are actually almost no movies about stoners. Now, you're protesting in your mind and listing all the movies about stoners, like Caddyshack or whatever, but in fact, you're thinking of movies made for stoners and not about them? See, stoners represent an enormous demographic of cultural consumers that have always been exploited and excluded by the entertainment industry. 12% of Americans smoke pot. But what percentage of music and movies are consumed by stoners? Half? More? Stoners are picking up what you are putting down, global entertainment economy. <coughs> We're doing the heavy lifting of thinking that movies and music are good. Yet stoners are always represented as like lovable losers and dopes and clowns. Are they those things? Sure. And sure, like maybe the stoner character has a heart of gold, but is the stoner not complicated? Does the stoner not love and feel loved? No. I mean, yes. What I mean is the stoner deserves better. Stoners love fantasy, they love sci-fi, stoners love superheroes, they love Tom Cruise, they love Tom Hanks, they love Tom Hardy, they love Tom Arnold, they love Tom Green, you name it. Even like moody Cold War movies where gray-faced people move like pieces of paper around in the rain and at the end someone gets arrested and you don't even remember if they were in the rest of the movie or not. And what side are we rooting for anyway? And did we win? A lot of movies that are supposedly for kids are really for stoners. Like Wally? Come on, bro. It's stoner chow right there. There's way too much violence and nihilism in superhero movies to show them to actual kids. God knows. But like, does stoner America? I mean, whoa. Does like Captain America have a stoner friend? Oh, don't make me laugh. No, you could argue, as I am doing presently, that stoners deserve to see movies about themselves just doing the things that they do even if those things are mostly getting stoned and watching movies. Like Cheech and Chong was practically 50 years ago, bro. And although their cultural references are still relevant today, it's not enough. Stop pandering and start being more inclusive. Like I'm not, I'm not saying I could organize any kind of boycott or anything. God, it's kind of an empty threat, actually. But stoners are the cultural litmus test. Look at it this way. Every film already has to be at least comprehensible by stoners. Or at a minimum, understandable collectively by a room full of stoners where, like, one smart girl is following along and, like, able to recap what everyone else missed when they were making nachos. So now, we need to start making stoners comprehensible to themselves and stuff. What Pauly Shore did with In the Army now is, in this sense, groundbreaking. 
because he made the fact that the protagonist is a stoner a secondary characteristic. He's not a wasteoid or a burnout or a goof or a dope. Or rather, he is definitely all those things, but he's also like a hero. And his heroism isn't in spite of being a stoner, it is a result of fully channeling his stoner powers that were heretofore untapped in the world of straights. No pot is even smoked in this movie, but it's clear that the higher wisdom gained from a decade or more of getting high is a superpower in and of itself, capable of destroying the Libyan army? Getting stoned makes you wise beyond your years, and stoners always knew that it makes you a warrior too. But do Mr. and Mrs. USA America know it? Well, now, thanks to Senior Shore, they do. In conclusion, this film, In the Army Now, represents the peak of the golden age of stoner inclusion of what could have been cultural moment. But after 9-11 and the fascist dictatorship of hair Dick Cheney, the prejudice against stoners came down again like a curtain of iron. And it would be another generation of stoners Stoners before the prohibition would finally be lifted and stoners could once again breathe the fresh air. We owe a debt to those pioneers who tried to show us the path. I only hope that Polly Short, wherever he is, looks down upon us with pride at our accomplishments and things. Right on. Oh, he's still alive. Oh. Day on friendly fire in the army now. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast whose hosts are asking permission. Can we please throw up now? I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. In the stereo store at the beginning, there's a scene where Polly Shore is uh, is crawling around on the floor uh, by the by the Laserdisc film selection yeah. to hide from his boss. And I was just looking at all of the other movies that we could have watched in that case. <laughs> what were some of the best? Uh, you got Ben-Hur. There's a there's a John Wayne film in there. There's um, The African Queen oh, yeah. is one of the movies. Yeah. Like, that's a pretty fun bit of uh, set dressing, right? Spartacus is in there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, what are the movies that are, are going to be visible in, in the scene? Laserdisc as a format was such a satisfying thing to hold and to search through. Like, yeah. it's it's too bad. It never worked out. When I was in film school at NYU, almost everything that they showed us was 
shown on Laserdisc yeah. because NYU had noticed that the Laserdisc market was in free fall and they just bought up like a library, like a very exhaustive library of like almost everything on Laserdisc wow. so that they could have that available to show in classes and they got it for very cheap Smart. because nobody was buying laser discs my uh my college film studies coursework was the same way and there was a window ben i don't know if you remember this where star wars was on laser disc but not on dvd you could only get it right. on vhs and so for a certain type of film nerd you had to go in on laser yes now wasn't the star wars on laser disc the one that had not been cgi'd wasn't that the only place you could get the non-CGI? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Laserdisc. That was the good stuff. And there's actually, there is a DVD version of that Star Wars that is, it's the same transfer as what was on Laserdisc. Oh. So it's um, it's not 16 by 9 format. It's like letterboxed 4 by 3 unfortunately. So it's pretty low res, but uh, you can get the, like a... A pretty close to original theatrical version of Star Wars because of that uh, laser disc version. Decisions, decisions. But where, if you watch that one, how would you ever know what Jar, uh, what the, what the, uh, Joe, what's his name? Boba, um, Gerber, Green, <laughs> Jabba the Green, but Jabba, Jabba, Jabba. How would you ever know yeah. what Jabba looked like when he was walking around the aerodrome? That's a great point. You wouldn't. You know, you'd have to wait a whole other movie to even see a Jabba. Understand. I just can't afford to make exceptions. Let me ask you guys this as film people. This is something I've always been kind of curious about and especially curious in the context of a movie like this one. Um, It seems like that uh, the people that were making this movie didn't give a shit about anything. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, no one was paying any attention to really anything. If you are hired to be the set dresser, right? The the continuity person. Mm-hmm. How much leeway would you have to like Easter egg your own film off script or, you know, like not following any director's vision, but just putting Ben-Hur in in a a scene as a kind of Easter egg for yourself or for attentive repeat viewers. Like how come we don't have more instances where a set dresser in the making of a film where there is clearly very little to no oversight, a set dresser just having fun with it and doing little things where all of the light switches are, are always down or, you know, like, Right. Because if if somebody said to me, like, okay, it's a video store in the early 90s, you know, like, make it look like a video store. (laughs) Meanwhile, we'll be over here, like, doing blow off of Andy Dick's toenails or whatever. And you're like, okay, well, I got a budget. Why don't, (laughs) you know, why don't I have a little fun with it? Nobody's going to notice it because everybody's too baked. But you never hear about that or see that, do you? I think that, like, the selection of movies in that scene is, like enough great movies that it seems intentional like let's look through what's here in this rack of films and put our favorites in the front or is it put the greatest movies of all time in the front in order to make a subtle 
a subtle dunk on the movie that we're making. <laughs> yeah. It's not the comedy language this film speaks, though. Like a Zucker Brothers film would would be making comedy out of prop and set design. But this is not the same comedy language as something like that. But the Zucker Brothers would be doing that intentionally. I'm just wondering. Yeah. Like, I want to hear from people that work in film in the set dressing uh, world in particular, because because it's a it's a thing I pick up on on movies, right? If I worked in Hollywood and was lucky enough to have a job where somebody said your budget is three hundred thousand dollars to make everybody in this picture look like it's nineteen forty four. Oh my God. That would be like the greatest gig of, of your entire life. Absolutely incredible, <laughs> right? Because I would be able to say like, well, that's actually not the 1911 model. The, the, the bluing was different on the, you know, like <laughs> how fun would that be? Yeah. And you, you, you notice it when it's perfect and you notice it when, when it's intentionally like making a point, but so often like in a movie like this, you know, there's kind of, no attempt like in the scene where the bombers are on their way to uh to bomb the scud missile base we see adam correct me if i'm wrong but between three and seven different kinds of airplanes <laughs> all purporting to be the same it's the same run it gave me an aneurysm <laughs> right aren't there F <laughs> f-14s and then f-111s and then yeah and it's just like what? The moment of pedantry that I found is uh, very related to this. Uh, the the kind of casual not give a fuckness of of the of the, of the continuity in this film, and the and the reality of this film. After they arrive in Chad, Fred sees some children wearing clothing typical of Southeast Asia. <laughs> I wonder like the about costumers that went, went and just were like, what's some ethnic shit we can put these kids in? <laughs> these kids are from uh, Burma. Yeah, Cambodia, something. <laughs> That's pretty close to Chad, right? If you were a set to, yeah, well, it's, I mean, Cambodia and Chad are, are close to each other in the uh, alphabetized. I guess so, yeah. They, they, <laughs> maybe the maybe the labels in the, in the costume warehouse at, Paramount Pictures got got mis, misplaced or something. Well, you know all those people that, I mean, now it happens on Instagram, but back in the day it used to happen with Polaroids. But like, you know, somebody has a little frog that they carry with them all the way across the country, and every time they take a picture of something, they got their little frog in the picture. My friend Peter used to carry a can of Schmidt beer, an unopened can of Schmidt in his backpack, and everywhere he went, he would he would take this can of Schmidt out and he would put it in the foreground. And so he's got a photo album of like, there's the Taj Mahal with a can of Schmidt animal beer in front of it. <laughs> and there's, I was with him. We were at the Vatican and he put a can of Schmidt down and one of the Swiss guards turned around, came over, picked it up and held it and looked in, looked at it. And we're both standing there, you know, he's in his full Swiss guard outfit. And we're just, we're both yeah. like completely gobsmacked. Like, <gasps> and I'm like, take the picture, take the picture. But you know, it was like, <laughs> it was like old day, old day camera. And he's like scrambling to get the camera. And the Swiss guard realizes it's a can of beer and gives the most, you know, the most beautiful look. And I'm like, take the fucking picture. And he didn't get a, Peter didn't get a picture. Swiss guard puts the can back down, goes over and stands with his, you know, with his pike or whatever those guys are carrying. Anyway, my question <laughs> is, in a movie like this, why wouldn't someone say, okay, I'm going to put a purple dildo somewhere in every wide shot? 
right? Like over between the ten. Nobody would notice and it would make the film better. My suspicion is that like movie trades are are run so reputationally that oh. like it would be noticed is the thing. Like this was not a successful film, but millions of people saw it. And the moment that your set dresser gets caught putting a purple dildo in a in a rack of laser discs, you're suddenly purple dildo set dresser right. and your phone stops <laughs> ringing. The way that the trades in movies get jobs is by reference and reputation, like primarily, and you can't do anything to fuck that up as much as you might want to. I, that's my suspicion. It's reference and reputation and also like gaps in in work are like very catastrophic if you're working at that level. I see. I had a conversation with a friend of mine once about like, there's some Mel Gibson movie in theaters and I was like, who are all the like people that agree to work on this movie given his reputation at this point? And he's like, you know, like, a, like the art director of a movie does not have the luxury of turning down work usually. Sure. Well, that's what they said in Nazi Germany. I mean, yeah, like the, therein lies the depravity of capitalism, right? Mm. Oh, I knew you'd turn it back to the depravity of capitalism. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're here talking about in the army now, which is in a lot of ways about two guys who have been pushed to the edge economically and are forced to make a terrible decision to join the army that they are neither prepared for nor good at. You are absolutely <laughs> right that the, that, the, that the real victims here are Pauly Shore and Andy Dick. What What is the Marxist reading of this film? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true and so good. Except for the movie at the end makes the case that the, the their ultimate goal of opening a stereo store was worthwhile and good. Oh, yeah. And a Marxist would never stand for that. Because I were a crazy boys. <laughs> I was expecting the bookend where where they open their their business at Crazy Boys and then Crazy Boys goes out of business. Oh, of course. Because of the success of Sahara Stereo. Oh, how easy. They just all they needed was the Crazy Boys the sign crossed off and Sahara Stereo. Why am I saying Sahara? What kind of what just happened to me? The Sahara Studio like over the top of it. What a much better ending. Oh, Adam. They set up the the bad boss figure as someone to come back to, and they never do. Yeah. This is what happens when you have five screenwriters and <laughs> a bunch of other people involved in, in the story making here. You said that this was not a successful film, Adam, but this is Polly Shore's fourth highest grossing movie. But it was also the film that, that crucially and critically kind of ended his career. This was the third in the three-picture deal he did with Disney. It was the least performing film of the three. He did go on to do other big films after, but it was a misstep by him. And it's something that he's talked about with a lot of regret. He had the chance to take a different film with a different studio. And the way contracts worked at the time was that he was beholden to Disney. Like he wanted to do this other movie. Katzenberg said, no, you got to do your third. Polly Shore was like, but I really want to do this other movie. Can I come back and do the third later? Katzenberg goes and buys the other movie that he was going to do, shelves it, makes it impossible to make and goes, make the third movie, Polly. Damn. Brutal. Yeah. 
Do either of you have a real-time memory of Polly Shore? I'm betting you don't, Ben, but do you, Adam? I do, yeah. I definitely caught um, Biodome on, like, I don't know, basic cable rerun or something when I was a kid. I, that was the that, That's the only movie I've seen him in, so I was uh, expecting this to be much more of a stoner comedy than it was. And, and I was wondering how they were going to thread that needle. Like, how is mid-90s Polly Shore going to be in the army hooting doobies and getting away with it? And uh, there wasn't even a reference to pot in this that no, I noticed. No. I thought that was his whole thing, but I guess that's just biodome. No, at this particular moment, they didn't need to reference pot because this was pre- overt stoner comedy and i'm not talking about cheech and chong but like there was a period where it, it was right before the uh dude where's my car era where it was like <laughs> we're just making movies where the entire plot is that people are too stoned uh but paulie shore you know he was on mtv <laughs> we're at the this sunset the plaza show, on man. sunset strip we got MTV. sam kennison other than cheech and chong there wasn't a ton of that in popular media anymore you know he filled this gap that people had this desire that there be one hilariously stoned person in the world but he was always a one note thing right paulie shore never was in a thing where he wasn't doing that he never he was never a romantic lead he was never a he never played a dramatic role he was always the wheeze he didn't have his uh, punch drunk love. No, no. <laughs> right. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about Polly Shore and his life and his career is that like he got super famous really young and he basically grew up in the comedy store with professional standups as his parents because his mom really like didn't have time for him. She was too busy running the store. She owned the comedy store, right? Yeah. yeah. And to become famous the way that he did, like she did not encourage him to do stand up. He went and did stand up outside of the comedy store, found that he liked it and then developed a persona that was MTV ready. He really kind of built his own career into this thing. And to be someone self-made in this in this very specific way and then to make one misstep like in retrospect i think i'm really being sincere when i say this like i really think it's tragic to for someone to look at their career and go like if i had not done in the army now and instead continued to develop the wheeze like i think the problem a lot of people had with this movie was that it was not the characters that he had been before, that he shaved his head, that he wasn't the surfer guy that people expected. Huh. And to see an entire career go away, basically because of that, it's sort of a child actor adjacent story. And he never got his fastball back afterwards. One thing I really appreciated overall, the, the joke density of the script is too low for this to be like a, a successful comedy but there were jokes that i was laughing at and i think that my favorite running joke was the the self dunks like yeah he's the face of this movie and a pretty high number of jokes are based on him like not getting something or being an idiot or making a mistake and there are a lot of very vain 
actors in mm-hmm. Hollywood that would not do that, and including comic actors, you know, like the like the joke being on them is a scary thing for some people. It's a quality of Polly's stand up right now. Like I've seen him perform many times at the comedy store. Wow. And he's very self aware about stuff like that. It made me think about a bit that we did on tour with Greatest Gen. At the end of one of our Star Trek films, there's a, a scene where Spock is put in a torpedo tube. The bit that like we came up with on stage was me talking about my childhood experience of that movie and not understanding why uh, the name Mark Iv was written on the side of Spock's torpedo tube. Mm, Mark Iv. And I remember searing embarrassment when I first said that on stage in front of a crowd, but also feeling rewarded by how funny it was to them. Mm-hmm. And wait, you mean you continued to not understand that until you were 30 years old? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. I see, no, I but just like unlocking that for myself, like going like, yeah, like I don't have to be above it. Like I can be the butt of the joke is a real like liberating idea for a comedic performer. And I, and I, reflected on that a lot in this movie like he is unafraid of making himself the the butt of it cool isn't funny and and cool never has been it's why there's a proportionality in success with stand-up comedians like the more popular they become and the bigger they get they become less funny i had no idea when watching this movie that i was going to be doing a show with two poly shore revisionist apologists one of whom apparently is a super fan who's seen him a dozen times on the stage, who's like celebrates his entire catalog. And the other You see a dozen comics every night at Comedy Store. Don't don't paint me with that brush. I'm not no. buying Polly Shore tickets. I'm well, I'm buying tickets to see a show. You just go to the comedy store like you're on your way home with a bag of vegetables and you're like, I think I'll stop into the comedy store and see what some new young artists. <laughs> Before I went to L.A., I went to the comedy store almost every time I visited. Well, that is a horrific thing to learn about you, too. I don't even know how to unpack it. But then over here, Ben is like writing a film paper about how Polly Shore is a, is like a model of uh, of like humorous self-effacement. I came here to dunk on this fucking shit movie. And you guys are all like rhapsodizing about how you're in the church of Polly Shore. The problem, John, is that you showed your cards the night that you watched the film by texting us at 3 a.m., why is this movie 90 entire minutes long? You gave us a full 36 hours to formulate yeah. rebuttals for comedic effects. Ben and I were talking before we got on mic about how much fun it would be to gaslight you into approaching this film totally academically and sober and serious and seeing how long it would take for you to break. Oh. Yeah, it took me 20 minutes before I was like, I can't. What, what is happening? Guys are cutting off my oxygen. You could not imagine a more 1995 set of jokes and ideas. And it really like finds a way to be sort of a recruitment film. Did you stick around to, for the credits and see like the grateful participation of the of the United States Army? Like involved in the film like that had to be how they got all that materiel like those are real helicopters yeah yeah they shot on a couple of uh real army bases and 
I don't know they how like, they didn't get some good footage of if you're gonna if you're if it's gonna be F one elevens, you know, like get more than more than two shots, get all four. The dark secret to this I read is that like one of the units that that sustained the most casualties during Desert Storm was the water treatment what? group of people. Like it was actually a very dangerous outfit to join for a desert war. Wow. And so the idea, like it's played for a laugh, like water treatment's going to be safe duty. And then Lori Petty's like, no, like in a desert war, that's like you definitely get sent out into the the field, but you also die. Wow. No kidding. You know, the, the elephant in the room, the camel in the room, there already was this movie and it was called Stripes and Stripes wasn't a good movie either, but Stripes had... Bill Murray and Harold Ramis in it. I feel like the induction into and boot camp stuff in this movie is just like, what if we did stripes but with Gen Xers instead of boomers? Yeah, that's exactly it. What are you? What are they? Any volunteers? I read an article that mentioned that the boot camp scene in this film is shockingly realistic, like down to the vehicles used and the the training that everyone had to do together, the uh, the uniforms especially were all screen correct. Hmm. The way that Polly Shore is like, well, what would you say? Just like completely flippant and also like sexually creepy to his drill sergeant throughout the whole boot camp scene and never really experiences any punishment other than like being given push-ups. Did you think it was weird that all the drill sergeants were black? Every one of them. Hmm. Well, remember, this movie was made during the quote-unquote post-racial America. Hmm. This is before the OJ chase, but after the Rodney King riots. This movie came out in August of 1994. OJ was chased by the LAPD and his white Bronco in mid-June of 1994. Oh, so, so this movie was done and in the can probably when uh, when that happened. Right. Right at the... Oh, boy, I remember that time so vividly. You know, I was still getting high when this movie came out. Not for much longer, but I still had, I still had three months of getting high before I got clean, so... You put your works down after seeing that that Bronco chase. I, the the Bronco <laughs> chase definitely put the fear of God into me, but I had but I but I kept getting fucked up for six more months. But I definitely was not in line to see a Pauly Shore movie at this time in my life. That was if I had five dollars, that was not where I was going to spend it. I see things very clear now. I read a very interesting tirade by someone about the David Allen Greer character uh, and and why he should have been of a superior enlisted rank mm. than the rest of them because he would have had to have a, a bachelor's degree to be in dental school and therefore would have entered the army as a specialist, an E4. I guess it's not called a promotion if you get made a PFC off of being a private. Like it's it's an advancement, but not a not a promotion. And to become a sergeant, you actually undergo training that you wouldn't get as a as a pfc but fred should have been should have been bossing them all around and (laughs) i could not believe how much david allen greer did with so little like 
If there's ever been a bad David Allen Greer performance, I've never seen it. He always gives 10 out of 10. He's this side character in this movie given one character note and he plays it like a fiddle. It's it's so fucking great. There's pathos in him in a movie where there is zero other pathos. Right. <laughs> yeah. Polly Shore is like almost almost totally immune to pathos as like as a <laughs> as a comedic persona. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that they like even had any in the film given the fact that it was a Polly Shore vehicle. But I feel like David Allen Greer like understands comedy better, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I think that's hitting it right on the head. He's a lifer. Yeah. Yeah. Lori Petty in a very early nineties role is the love interest in this film and also the like super butch hard ass uh aggro you know like go army person and i think that is a unique character in in war movies she's the only one really you know that's like wearing that shaved head with with uh with any style and then somewhere along the line the movie decides that she's also the also the sex pot she wants to suck face with Polly Shore. Yeah. Yeah, she's she covers a lot of interesting character ground. She she's in like like a very like girly outfit at the end, which I feel like movies of this era don't typically have the most bloodthirsty character also be the girliest character. 94, I mean that's peak riot girl in the culture. Right? So, you know, Lori Petty and her, you know, her like shaved head firepower bitch but also like a cute girl at the end that's that's a pretty 94 spin to put on the baseball well no that had to have come from Pauly Shore or from the from somewhere in the inside the movie that's not something I don't think a script writer would have imagined I think that probably had to come from casting Lori Petty and she's just like Here's what the character is. Yeah, or or Paulie Shore <laughs> said that like we got to get Lori Petty and this is it's got to be this, you know. A lesser movie elevates Gabriella into or someone who looks like Gabriella into that role. But that it's Lori Petty, I think makes the film a lot better. And she represents a type of beauty that that she had for the entire decade. Like like Lori Petty shaved her head so that Charlize could become Imperador Furiosa. (laughs) Like like she started the whole thing and she made it safe and good to, to crush on like a manic pixie dream tomboy and not just a Gabriella type that I think everyone going to movies in the nineties was force fed. Right. Like she built her career on these types of roles and it's a great career. The next year she made tank girl. (laughs) Really? Nice. (laughs) She went from in the army now to tank girl. What fun. Get your narrow little butt over here. I wouldn't want you to miss all this fun. I wanted to talk a little bit about chemical weapons and Scud missiles right. uh, in our conversation today because these are pretty like terrifying ideas, like the idea of as belligerent a regional power as Libya is getting its hands on weapons of mass destruction. And it is treated with very little seriousness by this movie. But yeah, like the the threat that is looming over the American military here, who I guess is just here to like stop Libya from invading Chad. Yeah. 
<laughs> like some of the some of the strains a little credulity that they would just want to take over the huge swaths of completely barren desert in the north of Chad. Mm, Chad. But also that they would uh, use chemical weapon tipped scuds to do it is, uh, you know, that was like the animating fear of the American military for a long time. And it was the the pretext that we did the the sequel to Desert Storm on. You know, northern Chad is full of diamonds. They're all buried under 600 feet of desert. You can't get to them, but they're there. This podcast is full of diamonds <laughs> that you also can't get to. <laughs> also pirate's gold. There's a lot of pirate's gold in northern Chad. Does anybody actually live there or is it just like totally barren? Because it's, it's one of those like dead straight international boundaries, but also like I can't imagine that there's like a river that they could have drawn the, the border along or something like that. The Sahel is the sort of um, prairie region along the entire southern side of the Sahara. It, it's like a geographical region that that kind of transcends national borders. And that is to the south of the border of Chad and Libya. Um, but it's the lower it's the lower part of Chad the lower half of it and the northern wherever that yeah. border region is is just the sahara but southern yeah. chad is like kind of funky or central chad pretty pretty nice if you you've you've flown over it right you I mean you've been there i have flown over it yeah the uh the flight that i took was like almost perfectly along that line where the sahara meets the you call it the sahel sahel yeah i flew from Addis Ababa to Kano and yeah. you like look out one side of the plane and it is just like completely desolate desert as far as the eye can see and you look at the other side and there's like plants yeah, yeah <laughs> it's yeah. like totally amazing thing to see and yeah like like Chad is it is a huge country by by land mass as is Libya it's hard to imagine like what life is like in in that border region and and I think that that's kind of something that this movie plays on that they can just rely on our almost total ignorance as American Heshers to, to just be like, okay, I guess uh, Libya's real mad at Chad today. The the decades of Libyan involvement as the heavy in, in any kind of film. Right. I think it's not a coincidence that they, that they picked Chad because you can say Chad like Chad. Like right. <laughs> Chad is a hilarious name for a for a country. Like it's named Chad, like your like your brother. I'm sure that had to play into it. Like hey, what's up? It's me, Chad. <laughs> Welcome to my African nation. But that region stretches all the way across Africa, and it's really a cultural region. It's like you have to look at Africa from east to west instead of north to south throughout that area and it's um i don't know i wish i knew more about it yeah that feels like a thing that that you could spend a lifetime studying like so many of those borders are more the result of previous colonial powers than any like anybody that actually lives there like that i think the tuaregs go to chad and they definitely go to niger which is right next door and also has a bunch of weird straight line borders with chad the thing about the Scud missile was the Scud did did play a large role in our imaginations 
during the yeah. first Gulf War because it was, in a way, I mean, what made Iraq such an interesting country to invade uh, and fight that war, you know, against them when they invaded Kuwait was that they were an unusually, like, potentially sophisticated adversary. They weren't your typical... It wasn't like fighting in Lebanon or uh, your typical situation where you're kind of fighting a proxy war in in Angola or whatever it was. You know, it's not like invading Grenada where there's no army really and there's no resistance. But the Iraqis had a real air force and, and you know, all this kind of Soviet military stuff they they were battle tested from their decade of war with iran and so you know going in to that war we had all this expectation that like the scud missile it was in a way it, it, it hadn't been since vietnam patriot missiles and scud missiles they were like right they were like the stars of the show great marketing for those missiles <laughs> we were facing an army that was one of our favorite things, which was we were going to test our guns against Soviet guns in the battlefield to see who was better, like whose short range missiles were better. You know, that was what made the conduct of that war. So uh, I'm talking about the, the original Iraq war. So kind of on the one hand, like there was a lot of flag waving about it, but it was also kind of despicable because yeah, they had a big army and we basically bulldozed them into a trench. But you could still say scud at this point in history and have it conjure up like a credible threat. The scud. Yeah. The scud was coming to get you. When I was in high school, there was a kid that was like friends with friends of mine named Burim. I think he was Albanian. And he was in the US going to high school because of conflicts in his home region and when he rolled joints he would roll like cone-shaped joints yeah, giant yeah. cone-shaped joints and he would he would say you want to hit this scud <laughs> 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 and it was like he was like you know he just had like a thousand yard stare he was unlike any of the kids i'd ever met yeah man one of those will really blow up your tent yeah <laughs> No kidding. Did you guys notice the scar on the back of Polly Shore's neck after they shaved his head? Yeah, what was that? It was from an ejected shell casing from filming this movie. What? No kidding. He got pretty injured by it, and that scar is no joke. It landed on his neck and it burned him really bad. Wow. I thought he had like a nubbin bug or something. Yeah, pretty rugged looking. He also learned how to treat water. Like he actually, <laughs> he actually went through the coursework to learn how to do all that stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. I am so yeah. glad that this, that this podcast has a Pauly Shore expert. <laughs> I really did not want to step up to this episode and, and like curb stomp it for an hour. Like that, that's no fun to me. I think what Friendly Fire does to even bad movies is worth doing and worth listening to. Oh, you would be wrong, my friend. I don't read our comments, John. <laughs>
Yeah. Oh, you're going to get some nuggies later. I'm going to just pound you like this. It may have been the same tirade about the ranks, but there so somebody was complaining that the discussion of the water was that it tasted good and that army water purification experts don't get charged with making the water taste good and they don't have the equipment to do it. All they do is make the water drinkable. Have you ever had water out of one of those life straws or anything? Like, have you ever drank fetid water that's been purified? I've done like backpacking trip in the Sierras where we had to do iodine tablets, but never, I've never done like the more of the high tech version. What's that like? Uh, kind of gross. You know, yeah. you like, you bring Kool-Aid with you so that you can make oh. the flavor a little bit more pleasurable. Do people in the military do that too? I don't know. That'd be cool if you're, if your MRE came with a little packet of Kool-Aid powder. <laughs> oh yeah. I feel like I need to sit down already. That's incredible. You get shot in the chest right through all of your Kool-Aid packets. Mm. Oh yeah. Your buddy's cradling you in his arms. He's like, oh, it's not going to be so bad. Also tastes delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it was the damnedest thing. He passed away in my arms, but uh, the smell was intoxicating. <laughs> what did you think of the stuff about like special forces being assholes and we're going to make fun of them and win every every prank war against them? That enlisted versus reservist conflict is a real thing, though, right? I, I was trying to think about this in the context of the time. You know, in the last 15 years... Culturally, we have become special forces fetishists. Like, yeah. basically, if you make a war movie now and it's not about the Navy SEALs or about some kind of special forces, like super yeah. soldiers, it, it wouldn't even make sense to a contemporary audience. Every single soldier in a movie now is some kind of hyper-trained operative. You never see just like soldiers doing soldier stuff. Even Jack Ryan has been field promoted from desk to hyper badass. Yeah, right. He's like, he's doing multiple karate chops, you know, every time he yeah. shoots his gun, he can't possibly miss. But I think at this point in time, there was, I mean, special forces has always played some kind of role in popular imagination, but Esai Morales, he's not just a regular soldier. He's given, somebody refers to him as as some kind of special forces, but he's a figure of fun and they're, and their hyped up energy. They're like, I'm a super badass. energy is played for laughs. And I think that would have worked at the time. You know, it, yeah, it's an, an anti-authoritarian comedy or a, or a nonconformist comedy. You got to find your bad guy in the, in some conformity. That's what's kind of weird about the movie is that it doesn't really it doesn't really uh, tilt its self against the army exactly. It doesn't indict the army. No, it really makes a case for being in the reserves. Yeah. Like it, it feels very positive about the army. And that we never really even see any Libyans up close except for, I mean, they're always in wide shot. So it's not like really the Libyans are the enemy. You know, the enemy is just kind of like, I mean, for me... As a viewer, the enemy was the film itself. <laughs> but within the film's universe, it's kind of an enemyless place, really. 
most of their challenges are like getting lost in the desert or whatever. Yeah, maybe the desert is the is the uh, their primary antagonist. It's a lot like Lords of Arabia in that way. <laughs> <laughs> All films on Friendly Fire deserve a custom rating system, even in the army now. Not every path is a journey, but the Friendly Fire journey has led us to here, to in the army now. <laughs> uh, camels represent so many things in, in the army now. Uh, it's a form of currency, in the scene where uh, they have to trade their truck for one, that same camel provides companionship. Uh, that camel saves Bones' life from that Libyan that's about to charge up the sand dune at him with the assault rifle. Uh, and then finally, for some reason, it's that same camel that's been airlifted into the base at the very end that gives us our feel-good ending. <laughs> one of like three feel-good endings that this film has, oddly enough. I approached this film expecting to hate it, and I did not. I'm looking at its rating on Amazon. Uh, four and a half stars for In the Army Now, based on 447 reviews. Uh, stars are not how we review films on Friendly Fire, though. For today, it will be one to five camels. There's a lot to think about when you think about In the Army Now, more than one may think. Mm. This film inspired a lot of research on my part. I did a lot of research about Polly Shore, obviously. Polly Shore, uh, a stand-up I've seen a number of times, as stated before. On what he experienced in his life, Polly Shore said this, Because I grew up in a comedy club raised by Sam Kinison and Richard Pryor and Gary Shandling and Roseanne Barr and all of these people that are very kind of crazy... My mom wasn't there, and she gave me to the comedians, and my dad was out on the road, and I had no parental supervision. And I think when you look at Polly Shore right now, he's still working. Mitzi Shore left the comedy store to him to manage when she died. They dim the lights for Polly Shore when he takes the stage, and I don't think that that's just because he's gotten older, but I think it's out of respect. And, I mean, there are a lot of fun stories to read about him, but there are a lot of other troubling bad stories about him and his life. I think, uh, I think his is an interesting story of early Hollywood success and maybe one that kind of serves as a warning for people that followed in the later 90s. Why do we watch movies, <laughs> guys? <laughs> for a lot of people... Especially in the mid-90s, it was about turning your mind off. There was no peak TV then, because there wasn't anything on that was challenging. So when we talk about the movies of their time, or the actors of their time, this is a version of that. This was, this was part of the peak, right? It isn't always going to be Platoon or Apocalypse Now in your movie theater. Sometimes your Kurtz is going to be Polly Shore. Sometimes that water buffalo is going to be a camel. But either way, we're just trying to escape the mundanity of our lives. And you could turn left and see clear and present danger in 1994, or you could turn right and see airheads or in the army now. What I'm trying to say is... What is happening in this review? We're all hurting. <laughs> we always have been. And it's just about finding something that makes you forget that for 90 minutes. That's why I'm going to give in the army now three and a half camels. It didn't make me hurt for 90 minutes. And I think that's doing a lot these days. 
It's true. There are a few places you could turn for a movie that is as casually racist, <laughs> casually homophobic, casually transphobic, and casually xenophobic as this movie that are also as, like, somehow inoffensive and enjoyable. <laughs> like, like it's definitely a product of its time, and it's definitely, like, got some, some really regrettable beats, but I kind of feel similar to you, Adam. It's, it's all so low stakes that it doesn't, like, none of, the, none of that stuff feels important enough, or, like, it couldn't have just been left on the cutting room floor enough that... I'm going to let it compromise my mild enjoyment of this mildly enjoyable movie. There were some funny stuff in it, not as much as you would hope in a film that's billed as a comedy, but when it was funny, it was like there were some really funny moments. And it was fun to see it was fun to see this cast. It was fun to see the people in it at this age hanging out. Like I guess nobody had quite cracked the Adam Sandler code of if we're going to do a movie we don't care about, we might as well set it in a place we want to hang out in for two months. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fact that their code name is like Glendale and Burbank is, you know, telegraphing how seriously they took the movie and how seriously they want us to take the movie. So um, just from a from a watching it standpoint, it's like, it's fine. It's a, it's a, an acceptable 90 minute film. And, uh, from a friendly fire standpoint, I thought we had a, like a more interesting conversation. Like I, this was one of those ones where I, I came in going like, is there even enough meat on this bone? Uh, and yet we still had a pretty enriching conversation and I'm, I'm glad that we're able to do that even about a movie this silly. So I'll give it, uh, I'll give it two and a half camels. I think that this is a classic issue of generation gap between the three of us. That gulf is largest in movies like this one. Pauly Shore and I are almost exactly the same age. He's like six months older than I am. And so my relationship to all these people at the time was already deeply conflicted before you even got into them making movies. You know, these were my... Generation X peers who were already famous at 21 uh, at a time when, you know, I was crashing on people's couches and just trying to stay high all the time. And so I naturally had that, you know, that 20 year olds feeling of uh, that there was injustice in the world all around. That's what defines a, a person in their early 20s. And a lot of the injustice, it seemed to me, um, you could connect to things like the fact that Pauly Shore was famous, which was as unjust as like famine to me at the time. And watching this movie, it really confirmed it for me. And it's sad because 1994, I should watch a movie from 1994 and, and rejoice in remembering the time, at least. I don't remember it from firsthand experience, but I, you know, like there should be some touchstones. I should be like, yeah, the only good you can take away from this is that Pauly Shore and this, I'm going to give him credit now, Adam. Despite, as Ben points out, the kind of just like low grade cultural uh, tone deafness of it, Polly Shore has not 
being outed as like an actual creep. But watching this movie, it was just such a joyless experience. Uh, the like to find the jokes funny would require that you you give them a lift up on the box, like you you kind of bend down and put your hands together and go, okay, joke, go ahead, step on my hand, I'll lift you up over the, you know, like you had to you had to help the you had to give the jokes not just the benefit of the doubt, but you had to go like, let me fill in the gaps for you, joke in my own mind and make that one funny enough to like, yay, hooray. This is the only movie. And I make jokes about watching these movies on my phone in the bathtub while I'm eating. But this was the first movie where I felt like it was fine for me to have the movie going in a screen on my laptop and also be looking stuff up in a different screen on the laptop. I've never done that before. I'm Come always, on, man. I'm always watching the movie and, you know, and just like, you get it, a friendly fire, serious business, man. Even the ones, even the that. movies that are terrible. I'm just like, I'm watching this, but, but by the time we got even halfway through boot camp, I was like, I've seen this movie. Not only have I seen this movie, I've seen this movie 20 times. Some of those 20 movies, that are this movie that I've already seen are among the worst movies I've ever seen. And this one is worse. This is the worst one of these. And there's already five of them on that list that are among the worst movies I've ever seen. So I don't, you know, if a rating system is to have any meaning at all, it has to, you have to explore the full breadth of it, right? You can't do this thing like with Adam where he charges the battery every time it gets below 15%. So pretty soon his battery only has the fifth, the top 15%. You have to run that battery all the way out and then recharge it all the way in order to keep the entire depth of the battery. Yeah, but my batteries are always changing. Sometimes they're batteries and sometimes they're camels. Well, but you're always, you have to buy new batteries because you don't, you don't, you don't run the battery out. You just you 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 recharge too fast, Adam. You don't know how I treat my. Batteries. I know I know what your battery budget is, and it's a lot higher than mine. <laughs> so I have to give in the army now, starring Pauly Shore and Andy Dick and Lori Petty and Dag. I have to give it a zero camels rate. There there is no reason to watch this movie and if there was a if there was a reason it would be watch this movie and be transported to 1994 you answered this question with your rating but i'm going to ask the question explicitly do you think bad comedy is worse than sincere drama that fails because i know that you didn't give a score this low for uss indianapolis like I, I get the sense that you're less forgiving of comedy than drama. And I wonder why that is. Because I'm less forgiving of drama. Keep that false sincerity out of my movies. The problem with USS Indianapolis uh, is that no one involved in the production of that movie um, had earned the right to tell that story. And in failing to earn the right to tell it and in doing such a miserable job of telling it, they like insulted its memory and insulted me, but there was sincerity somewhere. But this movie in the army now is cynical about everything. 
in the sense that it just feels more bankrupt even than cynically deploying the deaths of thousands in a military tragedy in order to make like an, a, a movie that's an abortion somehow to me. I could write a better script for this when I write the intro to this movie in three months when you guys say, oh, hey, you've got to write that intro to Polly Shore movie. And I go, huh? What? Oh, right. And then I write the intro starting at 11 p.m. the night before. I guarantee you. And I have no idea right now what that intro is going to be. People listening to this episode are going to have listened to it already. And so let them be the judge. Is the intro that I write to this going in totally blind three months from now a better a better like pitch for a screenplay than this entire film and i think it will be what i love about this is that there is a better than 80 percent chance that you will have not done the intro <laughs> in time and it's the urban that has to do it so cool. all right all right so <laughs> in that case if it is you or ben that does the intro because I because there's a better than eighty percent chance that I don't that I forget that we even had this conversation. <laughs> I bet you your intro will be a better that, that, that that's the that's the charge right that's the assignment. Good save, boy. I think that John is still going to be so mad about this movie in three or four months that he will he will insist yeah. upon writing the intro. That's my prediction. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm not. You know how you know how it goes. Sometimes it's like. You say I have to write the intro to something and I don't remember ha having ever watched the movie and then I forget that you told me I had to do a thing. I mean, that's basically like how we run this show, right? You'd be like, write the intro to In the Army now. And I'm like, oh, duh. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like no one's running it. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, just a not real tight grouping of ratings for this one. Uh, I wonder how tight our guys are going to be. And uh, as soon as I said that, I realized that's not how I wanted to put it. But Ben, who's your guy? Uh, I'm going to give my guy award to a character named Link, played by Brendan Fraser. Yeah, cameo. He coincidentally played a character named Link in Encino Man. Mm. I thought it was uh, pretty fun that he popped in. He was not a very famous guy at this point in his career, but uh, just popped in. I, I love seeing his smiling face. It, it was a bright point in the movie for me. He was just there for a second, right? Yeah. I, I like. It was so surprising to see him, and I'd forgotten that he had worked with Polly Shore and Encino Man. That I was like, oh wow, like he's going to be a character now. Like it, like that scene felt like they were setting up the Brendan Fraser character to come back later and do something else. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he did not, but, uh, you know, leave him wanting more. And, uh, I wanted more Brendan Fraser. <laughs> yeah. I wanted more David Allen Greer. I think as he was used in this movie, it was probably, probably the right choice sprinkling him around the way that, that they do. David Allen Greer has always done something with his eyes that feels like magic to me. You get a sense for the character he's portraying just through a kind of micro expression he's able to do, uh, whether it's like a a like micro twitch or a way, or a direction his eyes are looking. But uh, that is just a superpower. And as soon as Polly Shore sits down next to him in that classroom and 
Dag turns to look at him. You're about 80% there on 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 what Fred Ostroff is going to be <laughs> as a character just by the way he looks. And uh and it's weird because like David Allen Greer isn't a guy who's ever worn a lot of makeup or prosthetics. His hair isn't different in movies. Like what he has as his instrument is his face and he's got a great face. So uh, he's my guy. John, guy? <sighs> yeah, my guy is, um, has got to be Fabiano Udeño, who plays mm. the implausibly hot girlfriend, Gabriella. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. When she first appears in the film, pretending to be a customer who uh, is going to save Polly Shore, she's going to save his job by pretending to be a, a customer that he upsells. As a seasoned uh, American cinematiste, cinemaiste, how do you say that, Ben? Mm, cineast. Um, I recognized, uh, here's this implausibly hot girl. She will either be seduced by Polly Shore against all natural odds or then the twist that it turns out she was his girlfriend already really it's the thing you know it's the thing at the very top of the movie where you realize oh this is taking place in an alternate universe so she's my guy just because she because she is a pretty low-ranking movie star and also completely puts Polly shore in his place in terms of uh, on like three or four different spectra of taste and quality. Well, the only way to turn John's cratered mood around is to watch a different, maybe better movie next time. Maybe it's possible that the next movie will be better than this. I like our chances. All right, let's see. I got to clean out the coffee at the bottom of the cup. It's a friendly fire tradition. All right, here we go. Got the 120-sided die. And we're off. Fifty-seven. Five, seven. Fifty-seven is a 2004 film directed by Wolfgang Peterson about the Trojan War. Uh oh. Starring Bradley Pitt. It's Troy! No, 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 no! Wow! No. I was just talking to someone on our uh, Friendly Fire Facebook page about Troy relative to the fact that we uh, we recently watched Gladiator. Yeah. And oh, we're out of the frying pan and into the fire here. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I saw Troy in theaters and haven't seen it since. Uh, this. Is a continuation of a little a mini film festival we've been doing on Friendly Fire, another Sean Bean movie. Oh, yeah. oh, wow. I have not seen this movie, but you guys seem to think it's not good. Oh, dear. You're probably going to love it, frankly. How could it not be good? It's Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah. I wonder, uh, I wonder if there's like a director's cut of Troy that's good. Oh, yeah. There, there, there is a director's cut. Now let's see that. Three hours and 16 minutes, guys. Woof. No. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm partly worried that I won't hate it as much when I watch it a second mm. time. Because when I saw it in the theaters, I don't think you could hate it more. Right. And so I, I'm at real risk of 
liking it more because it's not as bad as I've, I've spent 10 years, 15, how long ago was it? 2007 spent 13 years hating this movie above all other movies. Wow. Really? That's a, that is a powerful hate. That's it. That's its own theme week. (laughs) We're doing a a series of films that John dislikes. We need to have John pick out the pork chop. Oh, thank you. Just to to make sure he doesn't leave the show. That would be nice. That would be nice. Give me, throw me a bone. Well, uh, Troy, director's cut will be next week's film here on Friendly Fire. Uh, In the meantime, we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's. So, for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor. Go spoiler alerts. (laughs) (laughs) Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast. Hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr courtesy of Stone Agate Music and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer this holiday season is the perfect time to explore the Friendly Fire back catalog like our episode on Major Dundee from last year that's a Sam Peckinpah directed Charlton Heston starring Western go check it out now feel like supporting our show we'll head to MaximumFun.org slash join And for as little as $5 a month, you'll gain access to our monthly pork chop feed and all of the bonus content for Maximum Fun. And go give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Dick had a compass the whole time. <laughs> you just on, forgot Dick. about it. That was a funny bit. That was good. You can also use a watch to to reckon your your direction. They must not have been paying that much attention in map reading class. Yeah, should have read the Anarchist Cookbook. Hmm, would have been on brand for them. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.